This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. 360, I'm sorry. An apology from Harvard's president as anger and division over Israel's war against Hamas rages on U.S. college campuses. Also, good news about the U.S. economy, but why so many don't believe it. Ellie Reeve visits West Monroe, Louisiana, to understand the disconnect. And a school shooter hears his sentence, an emotional day for the family of four Michigan high school students he gunned down two years ago. We start breaking news. A short time ago, the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, citing no mention in the resolution of the attack by Hamas. Thirteen countries voted in favor. The U.K. abstained. In Israel, that country's defense minister said he believes there are signs Hamas is, in his words, beginning to break inside Gaza. Today, an Israeli flag was seen raised in the middle of Palestine Square in the heart of Gaza City in the north. Alex Marquardt has more on the scale and intensity of the battle. Alex joins us now. So those comments from the defense minister, what evidence, if any, is there to support what he said? Well, Anderson, no doubt Israel has significantly degraded Hamas's capabilities. They have taken out several thousand of their fighters. They have killed several, many, in fact, of their mid and senior level commanders. They've seized a lot of their arsenal. But uh, Anderson, intense fighting remains, particularly around the city of Khan Yunus. That's where uh, several of Hamas's top leaders are believed to be, including its most senior leader, uh, Yahya Sinwar. Hamas continues to fire rockets. There were at least three barrages aimed at Tel Aviv today. The Iron Dome was deployed. So there is still a lot of concern about what Hamas can do. There's an expectation uh, that this phase, this high-intensity phase of the campaign, is going to continue for at least a couple more weeks. Many, of course, asking, at what cost? Anderson, we have to warn our viewers that some of the images they are about to see are graphic. The fight in Gaza's second biggest city intensifying. Israel's military claiming today to have killed dozens of Hamas militants in Khan Yunus in what it called tunnel-to-tunnel and house-to-house raids. Khan Yunus is a main stronghold of Hamas, Israel believes, where top Hamas leaders may be. Strikes were carried out in Gaza on around 450 targets over the past day, Israel said on Friday, as the Hamas-controlled health ministry reported the death toll in Gaza had climbed to around 17,500. According to the World Health Organization, Khan Yunus hospitals are now at the breaking point, over double capacity. This father of a wounded boy says they were in a designated safe zone and the children were playing outside when a deadly strike happened. The health ministry added today that infectious diseases are ripping through the population, some 300,000 cases of 15 different diseases, which CNN cannot verify. All this water is salty, it's dirty, it's got diseases in it, this woman says. We drink it, we wash with it, the children have gotten diarrhea from it. Gaza, a UN official said, is on the brink of full-blown collapse. The fighting forcing even greater waves of Palestinians towards the southernmost point of Gaza, where there isn't enough shelter, food, water or fuel. Israel accused Hamas on Thursday of firing rockets from within humanitarian zones. And today, sirens blared over Tel Aviv twice to warn of incoming rocket fire. The booms of the Iron Dome intercepting the rockets echoing across the city. Hundreds of terror suspects have been arrested in Gaza, the IDF says, and they accuse the men in these photos of being members or suspected members of Hamas, stripped down to make sure they weren't carrying explosives. 
but one news organization said they spotted one of their journalists. And the relative of two other men told CNN his brother and cousin have no militant ties. And Alex, uh, the IDF has said two soldiers were severely wounded in an operation to rescue hostages. What more do we know about that? Yeah, Anderson, they, they announced that today. They said it was an operation overnight to rescue several hostages. The operation was not successful. You have these two soldiers uh, who were severely wounded. The IDF saying that they did uh, actually kill several Hamas militants. We know of at least one other uh, rescue operation like this carried out by special operations. It was at the end of October. A young private named Ori Megidish uh, was rescued. Of course, Anderson, these hostages, and there are 137 of them who still remain in Gaza, are being held all over, we believe, uh, by different groups, above ground, below ground. Uh, we believe that they are uh, being moved. Uh, this comes at a time, these operations are happening at the same time that the, the hostage talks have come to a complete standstill. The mediators, Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S., trying to get Israel and Hamas back to the table, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon, Anderson. Alex Marquardt in Tel Aviv. Alex, thank you. We have seen startling divisions on college campuses in the wake of the war in Israel and Gaza. The leaders of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn are now under fire after their testimony to Congress in which they refused to say that calls for genocide against Jews on campus would violate their school's codes of conduct on harassment and bullying. There are now calls for those university presidents to resign. Nick Watt has more on the divisions at another major school in California. Those five seconds have been reposted by national influencers viewed millions of times on Instagram. Watch again. The caption attached this USC professor, John Strauss, threatened these students. Hope you get killed, and I hope they all are, during a campus rally for Gaza. We call on USC to terminate this professor immediately. The college paper proclaimed, tenured economics professor says, I hope they all are killed, walking by event mourning Palestinian deaths. Is that really what he meant or even what he said? Strauss, who is Jewish and avowedly pro-Israel, appeared on the campus newscast. Annenberg Media spoke with a USC professor who was put on administrative leave after a confrontation at a protest for Palestinian lives. I started getting emails, very, very, very nasty emails. Things from, um, I hope you die, you fascist pig, to um, uh, Palestine forever. While an actual war rages thousands of miles away, this video and its fallout typify the current conflicts on so many American college campuses. We have an atmosphere that's hostile to free speech is the key problem. The people who are going to college are adults, but a lot of them are acting like children. They want to see people punished for their speech. So what actually happened that day here in L.A.? Well, here is a longer version of that video, 21 seconds, not five. Professor Strauss, I believe. And that they should all die. Every one of them referred, of course, to Hamas. The longer video of Professor Strauss was shot and posted by this student, founder of Trojans for Palestine. She asked that we obscure her identity 
for fear of reprisals. Your identity is hidden here, but you expose the identity of Professor Strauss. So how do you kind of reconcile that? Professor Strauss, first of all, like he is a grown man, like, like I said, tenured faculty who harassed students. She says Strauss stepped on the names of the dead. He said that must have been an accident. Emotions, she said, were high. So Zionist students were like waving the Israeli flag in front of us and they were filming the names and like laughing at them. We spoke to a Jewish student who was there remembering their own dead. He did film the names and he was disrespectful. He apologizes for any offense caused, but told CNN he does not know for sure that all those names are innocent dead Palestinians because the source is the Gaza Health Ministry, controlled by Hamas. And that's a basic problem on these campuses. The two sides barely agree even on any basic facts. Trojans for Palestine. Why did you feel moved to create that? We have a very large Jewish population on campus. Um, we have obviously the Shoah Foundation. I was seeing a lot of misinformation being spread. And the two sides cannot even agree on the meaning of what actually comes out of mouths at the many pro-Palestinian rallies. Many pro-Palestinians say it's just a call for freedom. Many Jews say it's a call for genocide, for the destruction of Israel, which right now lies between the river and the sea. Is there a way back from where we are right now, where both sides feel similar things in terms of their voices being suppressed? On a personal level, no. Um, once I know that someone is unequivocally going to support Israel, I will cut them out of my life. And Nick Watt joins us now from Los Angeles. What, what more is USC saying about this? Well, that's very interesting. I mean, what they're saying basically gives us the other slice of this story, which is how college administrators across this country are struggling to deal with this. They're trying to mollify and assuage. They're trying not to offend. And they're making mistakes in the process, as we've seen on Capitol Hill. Here at USC, they say... Strauss was never placed on administrative leave. He says he was on November 10th, so I kept on pushing them, and eventually they told me, our statement discusses his status since November 13th. Uh, not exactly clear and candid. They now say that, I mean, they have said all along that they are shocked by the comments attached to those videos, and they now say, you know, all restrictions are lifted, he's allowed back on campus. Also worth noting that classes for the semester have finished. Um, they also say he has not been punished in any way. Last I heard from his lawyer, he's still under investigation and still could be punished. So as I say, they don't appear to know how to deal with all this stuff that is going on on college campuses. And it continues to happen. Yeah. Anderson. Quite appreciate it. Thank you. We mentioned the controversy over the comments made by the president of Harvard, Penn and MIT and the calls for them to resign. Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, apologized in an interview with the school's newspaper published today saying, I'm sorry, she told the Harvard Crimson, words matter. Congressman Josh Gottheimer went to two of the schools, Penn and Harvard, and is one of dozens of Jewish members in the House. I spoke to him earlier. Congressman Gottheimer, thanks for being with us. I'm wondering what was your reaction to what these university, I mean, when you heard these university presidents saying this and what they declined, what they said and what they declined to say in that House hearing, and now how they've been trying to clean it up, what do you make of it? I mean, I, I literally had to watch it multiple times because my jaw was on the ground. I couldn't believe they were actually saying uh, that calling for the genocide of Jews 
did not violate their code of conduct uh, and, and trigger bullying and harassment issues on their campus. Uh, and, and so, uh, frankly, I think the level of outrage across the country you know, is, is making them try to rewrite what they said. But the bottom line is they were saying unless there was actually conduct, unless a Jewish student was killed, it didn't violate their code of conduct and, and bullying and harassment unless it was actual conduct. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I think we're all in the same place on this. And every, everyone you heard ask questions of those presidents in shock. The, the Harvard president told the school's uh, Crimson newspaper, quote, I am sorry words matter. When words amplify distress and pain, I don't know how you could feel anything but regret. The University of Pennsylvania president, um, I'm not sure she directly uh, apologized. She said, in that moment, I was focused on our university's longstanding policies aligned with the U.S. Constitution, which say that speech alone is not punishable. Um, she also went on to say, I was not focused, but I should have been on the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide for Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. It's evil, plain and simple. Do you think they've gone far enough? Do you think they should step down? I certainly think the three of them should step aside. Imagine being uh, a parent of a student on that campus uh, who, you know, I don't ever want any student, I don't care if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, I don't want anyone to be afraid to go to class uh, to be who they are, uh, regardless of their background. And, and, uh, and to me, I don't know if you're, how if you're a Jewish student right now on those campuses, or frankly on a lot of campuses in our country, you're not just afraid. Uh, and, and that's when, when people are screaming death to Jews or dirty little Jew or other things that I've, I've heard from a lot of my constituency students of what, what it feels like now to be in this campus where they, they literally don't want to go to class. They can't wear a head covering, a yarmulke, right? They, they just can't be who they are. And I never want that. You, you know, you have a freedom of speech, which I believe in strongly uh, as, as a member of Congress, but you do also have a freedom from fear and, and no one should be afraid. We mentioned this newly launched House Education Workforce uh, Committee investigation to Harvard MIT and UPenn. I know you're not on that committee. Do you have a sense of what those lawmakers actually would be investigating? What kind of leverage they would have over private colleges? Each of these colleges receives a large amount of federal funding, uh, research funding, uh, and, and other resources. You know, and if they're in violation of Title VI, uh, I think these department, the Department of Education needs to investigate as well. Uh, they can lose their funding. The government should not encourage environments that literally put students in fear. Again, regardless of background, and I mean Islam, whether it's anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, none of this should be accepted. And we need to send a very strong message to these campuses that this can't go on, and this whatever these presidents said shouldn't be accepted. I mean, obviously, incidents of anti-Semitism in the U.S. have been widespread, not just at these three universities. How do you want to see it addressed on a, on a national level? Well, as, as someone who went to one of these schools and who uh, is on, on the Intelligence Committee and seeing um, well, not just what's going on here, but around the world in terms of the surge of anti-Semitism, uh, you know, which, which uh, has reached all-time highs. Uh, and what do I think? I think as a country, we need to make sure we stand up to hate in all its forms. A lot of it is about education and teaching. We got, I, I believe that TikTok is, is right now in the disinformation, is causing huge, uh, a huge destruction to, to the truth in, in our country. I think we have to make sure that we get the facts out um, and, and that we teach that hate is unacceptable in all forms. And the most important place to teach that, of course, is at our college campuses and our schools. Yeah, Congressman Josh Gottheimer, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, I really appreciate it. Still to come tonight, 
Trump loses another fight over a gag order, this time involving the federal 2020 election case. There is, though, one person on the case he can keep criticizing. We'll have details ahead. Also, Hunter Biden facing a new indictment and speaking out, attacking congressional Republicans in a new interview. What he said ahead. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be, too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. A federal appeals court panel today largely upheld the gag order in the former president's federal election subversion case, writing that his public statements about witnesses and others pose a, quote, significant and imminent threat to the trial's proceedings. Now, the decision bars the former president from talking about witnesses and court staff and their families, but he now can comment specifically about special counsel Jack Smith. Judges also called any delay in the trial date counterproductive, and they said he can't use his presidential candidacy nor the First Amendment as a shield. Quoting from the final paragraph, the decision, quote, we do not allow such an order lightly. Mr. Trump is a former president and current candidate for the presidency, and there is a strong public interest in what he has to say. But Mr. Trump is also an indicted criminal defendant, and he must stand trial in a courtroom under the same procedures that govern all other criminal defendants. That is what the rule of law means. The former president vows to appeal. I want to get some perspective from actual attorneys. Ellie Honig, a former assistant U.S. attorney, and Carrie Cordero, former counsel to the U.S. assistant attorney general for national security. Ellie, what do you make of the ruling? I think the Court of Appeals got it spot on here. It's a difficult balance. But what the Court of Appeals has done is craft a ruling that's as narrow as possible, that protects Donald Trump's very broad First Amendment interest, but also protects the trial. And I think the best way to understand it is if we look at the history. Originally, DOJ asked for a very broad, overbroad gag order. They basically wanted to prevent Trump from saying anything about anybody to do with the case. Judge Chutkin, I think, wisely rejected that. And she instead said he can say what he wants, but he can't talk about court staff, or witnesses, and he can't do something that might interfere with the jury. And today, the Court of Appeals just narrowed that a little bit more by saying he can talk about Jack Smith, though. Mm -hmm. So really, he can say much of what he would want and need to say to defend himself vigorously in the public, but also we're protecting the trial. So I I think they got it right. And Kerry, as we mentioned, the former president has already vowed to appeal the gag order ruling. What are the chances of him winning this if it ends up at the Supreme Court? Well, I think... 
I agree with Ellie that I think the appellate court drew, uh, walked a really difficult line and, and drew the lines where they should. So I, I don't think that the Supreme Court would necessarily alter it um, too much. But but we honestly don't know, Anderson, because this is a really challenging order to be implemented. I think it's going to be hard if for each instance that the former president then says something or tweets something, if then that goes back to the district court judge whose order has now been slightly adjusted by the appellate level. And how is the district court judge going to have to navigate each one of those instances? Because the former president, we know how he acts in public. So he will go right up to lines. He will try to cross the line ever so slightly. And I think it's going to be a difficult um, opinion to implement as a practical matter. And Ellie, the, I mean, the former president continues to insist that he has absolute immunity, which is obviously an argument that, that Judge Shutkin has rejected. They're going to uh, appeal it. Um, but there's a lot of, I mean, that's an important issue to decide. Yeah, I mean, the gag order is important, but the immunity issue is make or break. Because if Trump wins, I think it's unlikely, it's possible, but unlikely, if he wins on this, the case is over. Now, he's appealing now. He's arguing to the Court of Appeals. First of all, there is such thing as criminal immunity. We don't even know that. There is such thing as civil immunity. But Trump's trying to make a novel argument that there's criminal immunity. And he's arguing, what I am accused of doing here was part of my job as president. Judge Chutkin has rejected that. I think whatever the Court of Appeals does, this is going up to the Supreme Court. The other thing that Trump is arguing is, while I'm going through the appeal, everything at the trial court level all the discovery, all the motions, all the stuff you'd get ready to do before trial, all that should be put on hold. And if he succeeds on that, that could really jeopardize the March trial date. So that's really important. And we have to keep an eye on that. And, and Carrie, I mean, what would you expect the Supreme Court to do with that question of whether Trump has immunity? So on the immunity, I think he's going to lose substantively. Um, he has tried to make these different claims of immunity in a number of different contexts. He loses every time. He continues to create a law that is not in his favor on that issue of immunity. He tries to claim it as a former president. So I think he loses on that. But I do think um, that there is the potential as its way, as it makes its way through the court, particularly if it ends up in the Supreme Court, to push that March trial date. Mm. So I think he has less substantive merit on that case, um, different than the appellate decision on the First Amendment issues, which acknowledge that he had some credible arguments. So, the, Ellie, do you agree that there's a chance the court will put everything on hold until a decision is made and that would push the March 4th trial date back? I think that's possible. Uh, I think it is incumbent on both the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, whether they put things on hold or not, they have to move at lightning speed here. They have to be aware of this. People sometimes ask, well, how long does an appeal take? The answer is as long as the appellate judges want it to take. I've seen appeals take two years, but we've also seen in other Trump-related cases, appeals get resolved in three, four weeks. So these judges have to be operating in the real world, and whether they put things on hold or not, mm. they need to be ready to rule quickly. Ellie Honig, Kerry Cordero, thanks so much. Coming up next, a parade and politics, what voters at a holiday celebration in Louisiana have to say about the economy and why that could be a challenge for President Biden and his re-election campaign. The Biden-Harris campaign is touting a better-than-expected jobs report. According to the Labor Department, 199,000 jobs were added uh, last month, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.7%. Now, the campaign says the report 
quote, confirms how much progress we've made under President Biden's leadership. And they went on to say the U.S. economy has consistently defied expectations and experienced the fastest recovery in history, far outpacing our global counterparts. Now, Democrats are arguing that those gains are at risk if the former president is reelected. Our Ellie Reeve went to Louisiana, talked with voters who certainly do not see it that way. Here's her report. This is the annual Bakkenville Redneck Christmas Parade in West Monroe, Louisiana. It's just not your typical Christmas parade. I mean, we've got a motorized lazy boy. I mean, you can't get much more redneck than that. It's hilarious. People will be throwing toilet paper, ramen packets, toothbrushes. My goodness, it's always a good laugh. This part of our town, I don't think there's very many uh, rules, you know, and so pretty much anything goes. But behind the jokes, there's a tough reality. Bakkenville is a very poor community, and the parade serves as a holiday toy drive. I have been a child who has been less fortunate growing up, and I had the Regnet Parade, the fire department give me and my brother's Christmas gifts, and this is my way of returning the love. These ladies run Bakkenville Hope, a nonprofit that gives food to the needy. Is there a lot of need in this community oh, for that? Lord, yes. People don't realize this is kind of like a third world country. There's need for clothes, food, housing. There's many, many homeless in this area. There's a lot of abandoned homes, abandoned trailers that they're living in. And so... And in the woods, yeah. they just makeshift tents. They were managing to survive until everything got so expensive and they couldn't afford the little apartments that they had or the houses. and. Interest rates skyrocketing, fuel skyrocketing, um, the milk, $5 a gallon. I know it's sensitive subject, but do you guys have any thoughts about the upcoming presidential election? We hope Trump gets back in there. Maybe he can straighten it out. And why do you think he'd straighten it out? Because it wasn't in this turmoil when he left. All this has managed to happen in the last three years, so. I think we are going downhill. Especially for a parent like me that's a single mom and not being able to find work. Feels like you keep getting put in a hole. You're trying to climb out, but you keep getting knocked down. President Biden's campaign has been pushing Bidenomics, saying the economy has gotten better since he's been in office. But while by some metrics that's true, wages are higher, inflation is falling, public opinion polls show that people still think it's bad. So there's some, you know, commentary punditry that says, well, yeah, inflation was bad, but now it's lower. The economy was bad, but now it's better. Unemployment is lower. What do you say to those people? I say that's a big fat lie. Okay, why? Just give me well, some details. I mean, look, look at our pocketbooks. What little people may have been able to save from the stimuluses we got and all that, it's gone. People are living off credit now, if they even have that. I don't know how these families that come to this redneck parade, this community, even can buy groceries because you got to either choose to buy gas or do I buy groceries or do I pay my electric bill. Louisiana is a deep red state and neither presidential campaign will spend much money to win over voters here. There were a few Trump flags at the parade, but support for the former president had a different feel to what we felt in the run-up to 2020. No comment. Many people didn't want to comment on politics, but those who did focused on the economy. Economy, uh, economy, economy, you know, economy is horrible. 
We're ready for Trump to get, um, can I say that? Totally. We're ready for Trump to get back in. Can't wait. We're counting on it. I think he cares. May be wrong, but I think he does. And not to say he's going to be perfect. We know that, you know, a lot of things he does, eh. But for the most part, when he was in office, even with everything going on, he accomplished a lot. And do you think that Biden doesn't care about people down here? I don't think that he has a clip. You've probably seen a lot running a convenience store. Oh, yeah. They got problems with the drugs, the meth, and the fentanyl. That's here. It's prevalent. And the law still hadn't been able to deal with it. I blame Biden for that, too. Who do you think you'd vote for in the 2024 presidential election? Trump. Why? Because he's the only president, in my knowledge, who's given back to the people and helps the people. If he's in jail, I'd vote for him. And Ella Reeve joins us now. Um, it's, you know, you can hear all the, the news reports about unemployment levels dropping, inflation, you know, cooling. Uh, but people aren't feeling it in a lot of places. The people who are most animated when talking to us about politics were people who had jobs that put them working with people on the margins. So those two women who ran the food pantry, twice a month before COVID, they were giving out 70 boxes of free food a week. During the pandemic, it was 600, and it hasn't dropped. It hasn't dropped since then. Yeah. And Tony Bowler, she worked helping getting um, housing for mentally ill people. But there just isn't enough housing, and so a lot of them have to live in nursing homes. Mm. So while none of these people might have been Biden fans to begin with, the economic problems they're talking about are real. And finding work in that community, how difficult is it? Uh, it is a community with a high poverty rate, a higher unemployment rate. Um, I mean, you just walk around... Uh, and there's a lot of people living really difficult lives. Yeah. It's interesting to see the the role that parade plays in people's lives. I mean, and that tradition of it, and the, I mean that that young woman saying, you know, as a child, she was she the, the, these were Christmas gifts she was getting, and, and and she wants to give back now through this parade. Yeah, it's like joking, but not joking. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, like. There were many really fancy pickup trucks there. Like, not everybody was broke, but there was a real understanding and acknowledgement of need there and also kind of a celebration that, like, okay, we live like this. We're not like city folk, is what one person said. You know, we like to be outside. This is how we have a good time. Yeah, yeah it's a celebration of a, of a remarkable and resilient community. Uh, Ellie Reed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, coming up just a day after Hunter Biden was indicted on nine tax charges, the president's son shares why he thinks Republicans are targeting him in a newly released interview details next. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are. 
which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. A day after Hunter Biden was indicted on nine tax charges in connection with the long-running Justice Department investigation into him, the White House stayed largely silent on the issue, refusing to comment on the new charges and instead saying the president, quote, loves his son and supports him as he continues to rebuild his life. In a new podcast interview released today, recorded before this latest indictment, Hunter Biden had much to say about Republicans tying his legal problems to his father. They are trying to, in, the, in, in their most uh, illegitimate way, but rational way, they're trying to destroy a presidency. And so it's not about me. In their most base way, what they're trying to do is they're trying to kill me, knowing that it will be a pain greater than my father could be able to handle. Joining me now is CNN contributor and author Evan Osnos. He's written a remarkable biography of the president, and his latest book is on the deep division in the U.S. It's titled Wild Land, The Making of America's Fury. Evan, I'm wondering what your reaction is to hearing Hunter Biden saying that. It's, I mean, pretty extraordinary thing to hear. I think it's a window into the pressures inside this family, the pressures on this man. I think just on a purely human level, what you hear him saying is his belief that the Republican campaign against him is intended to drive him back into addiction, ultimately back into the kind of downward spiral, which we all know about, which he's written about, uh, with the goal of undermining Joe Biden's sort of core source of strength. And that, after all, is his family. He talks about it. So I, I think it is a sign, Anderson, of this extraordinary collision of the political, the personal, the legal. And the guy at the center of it is the son of the president. And we don't hear from him very often. And this was a window into what he's going through. Yeah. As you know, I spoke with President Biden recently uh, from my podcast, all, all There Is, which is focused on grief and, and loss and the extent to which his family is the core that has pulled him through uh, a lot of tragedy. I want to play just something he said. Bo and Hunt, they finish each other's sentences. They are the closest they could possibly be. And I think the loss of Bo was a profound, profound impact on Hunter. But when Jill and I got married, she was just totally embraced by them. Everything we've done we've always done as a really close-knit family. I thought it was interesting to hear him talk about the, the impact of Bo Biden's death on, on his brother. Yeah, it, it is a huge piece of this story that we don't talk about very often. The death of Bo Biden, honestly, Anderson, as you know from your conversation with the president, was like a bomb going off in that family. And it, the reverberations went through everybody. Uh, at the time, of course, President, then Vice President Biden made the decision not to run for president. But then his son, Hunter, of course, began this downward descent. The, uh, so many of the things that we talk about in his legal case, 
uh, in his in the investigations in Congress are around that period. And you heard in the president's voice in his conversation with you, he wanted and he sort of came right up to the point of talking about that impact and he stopped himself. I think there is a way in which he draws a line around what he will and will not say about Hunter's legal problems, because after all, he doesn't want to be seen as putting a thumb on the scale. I, I want to play just another thing that the president said in this uh, podcast. Bo's son looks like him. Hunter's son looks like Bo. Mm -hmm. Bo named his son Hunter and Hunter named his son Bo. I mean, it's like, it's, I know it sounds stupid to people who haven't been through this, people, but no, there's, this, beautiful. there's this thing. And I even find that, that I'll find my, one of my grandchildren doing what Bo would have done. He was talking about just the importance of contact with Hunter, with his daughter, Ashley, with uh, all the members of his family, his grandchildren, talking to them constantly throughout the day, uh, reaching out to them e each day. Um, that is what, for the president, has really enabled him. It's given him purpose beyond his pain, as he said. That's exactly it. At one point, I think in his interview with you, he described grief as the glue that holds this family together, meaning that it's the thing also that allows each one to support the other. It is this it is a family that has been through agony, not just once uh, in 1972, but then, of course, in Bo's death. And I, when, it, when he talks about having constant contact with his surviving children, with his grandchildren, it is a big piece of how he organizes his life. And we don't see that very often. It's only rarely that we get a window into what the pressures are in a family like this. Um, and it's extraordinary. We haven't had a situation like this in the White House in a long time. And, and we've seen, you know, I remember when Jimmy Carter's brother, you know, was getting into in, into trouble and, and there were questions, you know, would the president distance himself from his brother? Um, in a situation like this, obviously, given, I mean, Hunter Biden's importance and role in, in President Biden's life, obviously they are deeply, deeply connected as, as any father and son would and should be. Yeah, and, and that's that's not going to change. I, I can tell you one thing for sure, Anderson. It's that, you know, people sometimes wonder why does Hunter Biden still play a public role in this family? Why is he in and out of the White House as much as he is? It's because Jill Biden and Joe Biden feel very deeply that that is an essential piece of their lives. They're not yeah. going to change that. And in fact, he's you know he's put him he's brought him on foreign trips. That is a piece of of the present, and it's going to be a piece of the future. Um, if anything, uh, their solution has been to bring him closer, not yeah. push him away. Evan Osnos, thanks so much. If you want to hear my full interview with President Biden in the podcast, all there is, you can scan the QR code you see there on the screen. The podcast is about grief and loss, uh, which is something we all experience and don't talk about enough. I hope you can listen and that it helps. It has certainly uh, helped me uh, to hear from so many people talking about their grief and loss. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Just ahead, a teenage gunman who killed four fellow high school students gets sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. What the family said to the killer as they faced him in court next. It's been more than two long and tumultuous years for the families and friends of the four victims killed in a high school shooting in Oxford, Michigan. 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana, 16-year-old Tate Meyer, and two 17-year-olds, Madison Baldwin and Justin Schilling, were killed on November 30th, 2021. Well, tonight, their families, their loved ones, have finally received some sense of justice. After hours of gut-wrenching emotional statements in court today, the shooter was sentenced to life in prison without parole. CNN's Jean Cazares has more. Families finally getting their chance to be heard. 
Our family has been navigating our way through complete hell. It almost feels like time slows down and everything around you speeds up. It's been two years already, but feels much like yesterday. Madison Baldwin's mother describing the moment she learned her 17-year-old daughter was dead. On November 30th, 2021, is a day that has forever changed my life. It burns into my body like a cigarette burn. I looked through the glass. My scream sh should have shattered it. My daughter's lifeless body was laying on a cold metal gurney. After speaking in court, Nicole Bosole told CNN she felt her daughter was with her today. I felt like she was saying, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for taking the higher route you know, not going down that path of anger. Madeline Johnson didn't know walking to class that day would be the last time she would see her friend. I didn't think that goodbye was going to be permanent. I thought it was goodbye for an hour. I'll see you next class. At first, Kylie Osage thought a balloon popped, then realized she was shot. I fell right to the ground. I remember hearing screams. I saw running but I couldn't run. I was already down. Right next to her, Hannah St. Juliana. Realizing that I wasn't alone, I kept trying to reassure her. Someone will come help us. Don't worry. Just keep breathing. Just please stay with me. I said that to her a thousand times. Hannah died from her injuries. Her father spoke directly to the shooter of the future he stole. I will never think back fondly of her high school and college graduations. I will never walk her down the aisle as she begins the journey of starting her own family. I am forever denied the chance to hold her or her future children in my arms. In addition to the four students killed, seven other people were shot that day but survived, including Riley France, who was hit in the neck, and Molly Darnell, a teacher at the school. I can no longer sleep without having flashbacks of a bullet entering one side of my neck and exiting the other. Because I came within your line of sight, you intended to kill me. Someone you didn't even know. The shooter was sentenced to life in prison without parole. There's utterly nothing that he could ever do to contribute to society that would make up for the lives that he has so ruthlessly taken. I want the person who did this to know that Madison would have been your friend. I want you to know that she would have treated you with nothing but kindness had you not killed her. I'm not sure how much emotion you're capable of feeling, but I hope you regret it. And I hope it eats away at you. And I hope you feel even a fraction of the loneliness that I felt over these last two years. What you stole from us is not replaceable. But what we won't let you steal from us is a life of normalcy. And we'll find a, a way to get there through forgiveness and through putting good into this world. Gene joins me now from Pontiac, Michigan. Gene, the, the parents of the shooter are expected to stand trial themselves next year for involuntary manslaughter. What do we know about that? That's right. You know, this is a precedent-setting case. This is the first time in this country that the parents of a school mass shooter have actually been charged themselves with causing the shooting. Just as you say, they've been charged with involuntary manslaughter. Prosecution is saying you had notice, your son had mental issues, he was begging you for help. Nonetheless, you bought him a gun. Days later, he committed this mass shooting. 
and they have been tried together, but just in the last few weeks, the judge severed them because now they have independent defenses. Looks like they may be going at each other. But one of the parents will stand trial beginning January 23rd, 2024. It will be interesting. Yeah, Gene Cazares, thanks very much. Coming up next after this tough week, something we hope brings you a little happiness. Details on Sunday night's CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute hosted by me and Laura Coates. An incredible night where we honor 10 people really making a difference in our world. A lot of really inspiring, remarkable people. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Have a great weekend. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.